The goal for that was to have at least one song that everyone would hate, so now all of you are equally annoyed, and that song is stuck in your head. Um, I, I, I think this, there's some interesting things about people, and one of my favorite things to find out is um, words or phrases that people hate. Um, I have a friend who hates the word moist, and so I try to find as many ways as possible to describe things as moist, um, just because it gets on our nerves and just... Because um, I know other people who, who don't like the word chunky. Um, I don't think it's a very good adjective for me, but there's other ways, other things that you can describe. Uh, so everybody has these like nails on the chalkboard kind of words, right? Um, speaking of nails on the chalkboard, uh, my brother-in-law, he, he doesn't like the sound that a fork makes when it scrapes on the plate. Like, to the point where he'll get up and leave the dinner table if you do it enough. It takes about three minutes to make it happen, and it's my favorite three minutes of the day every time. Um, so, but I, I have a couple things that, that kind of bother me. Uh, they, they drive me a little bit crazy. Um, and here's what's interesting. One of them is when people use words incorrectly. Um, in some circles, we call it a malpropism. In other circles, we just say, you're dumb. Um, but... But what's interesting is that I've, I was doing some research on words and things that people hate, and I came across this list of the most hated words. Here's what's funny. Of the top four most hated words, two of them are not words, but phrases. Like, I don't like that, okay? If we're, if we're talking words, let's talk words. If we're talking phrases, let's talk phrases. So here are the most hated words in the English language at the end of 2017. The first was whatever. Whatever has been the top most hated word, according to this website, since 1996 when Clueless was released. I find that fascinating. Like, we can't get over that movie, I guess. Um, <laughs> the second most hated word is not a word, but it's a phrase, and it's no offense, but. <laughs> Here's why no one likes that word, or phrase, whatever you want to call it, because it's never going to be followed by no offense, but you are beautiful right? It's never going to be followed by no offense, but I'd like to give you a million dollars. It's always followed by something that's really offensive, right? Like, no offense, but your nose is crooked. Like, no offense, but your breacher's a little chunky. Like, I don't know where else to go with this, but it's this funny thing where everyone, like, no offense intended, like, whether you intended it or not, it happened. The third one is probably the one that might drive me the most crazy. It's the word literally. Now, here's a really quick English lesson for those of you who aren't big into talking good. Literally means, some of you got it, some of you are like, I ain't, so I don't care, all right? So, the word literally means actual. So, if you say the preacher literally preached all day, I would have to start in the morning and go until the sun went down not happening, okay? So the word literally has always meant actual or really, but over the last couple of years, it's been co-opted to also metaphorically mean figuratively. So you tracking? Sometimes people say literally to mean figuratively. So when they say literally, they mean the opposite of literally. This is the best thing you've learned all day, is it not? 
So here's what's really annoying is that in 2016, Merriam-Webster went to the dictionary and changed the dictionary definition of literal to include the times when people colloquially use it to mean figuratively. So now I can literally preach all day and it'll still only last 30 minutes. (laughs) This is the worst English class I've ever been in. I don't want to come back to this church anymore. The last one that people hate, and I don't have an opinion on this because whatever, but (laughs) the last one that people hate is, you know what I mean. I mean, do you know what I mean? (laughs) That one wasn't that good. That was on purpose. So so here's the thing, right? Those are words that people hate. Some of you are so bored right now. You're like, can we go home? I literally want to. And you're like, whatever it is for you. But here's... (laughs) I'm going to use that word all the time now. But here's the, here's the word for me, right? You can say any of those words you want to me. It won't bother me that much. You can say moist. You can say pus. You can say anything that you think will bother me. It probably won't bother me until you say the word deserve. I hate the word deserve. And it's probably wrong of me, but it's my opinion, so I can be as wrong as I want to be. I hate the word deserve because I don't think we deserve anything. And so here, here's, what, here's what happens inevitably, is that we'll say the word deserve because someone deserves uh, this reward. We'll say the word deserve because someone did enough to to earn a a prize or or something like that, or we'll give something a a day off and we'll say they they deserve it. Whatever whatever it is, almost, almost every time you use the word deserve, it will grate on my nerves. Because here's what I think, and this is going to sound a little drastic, so stick with me. I don't don't want you to, to tune out, but here's what I want you to know. The only thing we as human beings deserve is death. Okay, now, reel that back with me. As people, we only have breath and life because God gave it to us. We we believe here that God created the world, that he spoke it into existence, that everything that is and will be happens because God allowed it to happen, because God created the world. And so we believe that we as people were created by God. And so that through God, our purpose, our life, our, our goals, all of that comes from God. None of it are things that we've earned or done on our own. Here's, here's the catch. God created us in order to, to live amongst us, but he said, in order for me to live amongst you, there are some things that you have to do. And he said, and if you don't do these things or you do these bad things, he said, you, you will die. That's the punishment. And from the beginning, we did those things. And so the punishment that we deserve is death. And so whatever else it is that we think we deserve, that we think we've earned, that we think we're good enough for, I am of the opinion, and I can back it up biblically, that the only thing we as people deserve is death. Now, here's the deal. I know that when I say that, it sounds really dramatic. And when I say that, it sounds to people like, I, like I'm a really doom and gloom, nihilist kind of guy. But here, here's what I want you to know, is that I know you're thinking, you know what? I'm a good person. 
and you're thinking about the fact that you're here, and you're thinking about the fact that you, you give to the church, or that you, you listen to the Christian songs on the radio, and you didn't recognize any of those songs in the video, you know, like, like you're thinking about all the things that you do that make you a good person, and, and here's what I want to tell you, and I want you to hear me well. You're not, and that's okay. Here, here's, what hap- here's why this is, this is the case. You see, for most of us, we use the standard of whether or not we're a good person as someone who we know we can beat, right? So I'm a good person because I'm not as... I think the sound system knew that I was telling a lie. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know what's happening, but it's karma, probably. Um, So we say, I am a good person because I do such and such better than so and so. We say, I'm a good person because I I answer such and such better than so and so. And what happens is it's easy to cherry pick the other person, right? Like I can pick someone who I know I'm nicer than, I'm kinder than, I'm more generous than, and I can say, see, I'm better than them. I I do it all the time in my marriage. I'm like, you know, I'm probably not the best husband, but at least I'm not so and so as your husband. And Whitney says, I just wish I didn't have a husband. But that's another story for another day. So what happens when we do this is we end up with the worst person on earth as the standard for whether or not you're a good person. You see, because I say I'm better than person A, person A says, you know what, I'm... I'm better than person B. And it goes all the way down to whoever fill in the blank you think might be the worst person on earth, and that person becomes the standard for whether or not you're a good person. As long as you aren't as bad as that person, then you're a good person. This week, um, my Aunt Roseanne, my mom's oldest sister, went to heaven. And I, I actually wasn't going to tell anyone about it. Um, I just, like, it's, I'm weird. I know that. Uh, but I don't want to tell them people because I, I, I didn't really want people to offer me their condolences. Um, she's been struggling with Parkinson's for five to seven years. She hasn't been herself for a while. She was ready to go, and so we are sad, but we're so incredibly happy for her. Here's why I tell you that. I tell you that because I'm positive Roseanne Russell is in heaven today. I'm positive she's in heaven today because if she's not getting in on merit, none of us are getting in on merit, Right? But here's the first thing Roseanne would tell you. Roseanne didn't get into heaven because she was a good person. Roseanne did not get into heaven because she was a a, a speaker at ladies groups and traveled across the country and spoke and taught at different women's Bible studies. She's not getting into heaven because for 50 years she was a faithful member of the Conneautville Church of Christ and she led the youth group and led the choir and did all of these things that, that, that she would do. She's not getting into heaven because she, at age 29, gave up all of her own personal goals in life to move in with a friend who had just lost her husband and helped raise those kids for the next 25 years. She's not getting into heaven because she, is, she did research and read and knows a lot about the Bible. Roseanne would be the first one to tell you that she is in heaven today because of Jesus. If you were here last week at Easter, we talked about Jesus as the substitutionary atonement, Jesus as the one who took our place. And Roseanne would tell you, and I would tell you, and anyone who knows what the scriptures will tell you will tell you, no one's getting into heaven because they're a good person. I'll go a step further to say no one's getting into heaven because no one is a good person. 
And I tell you all of this to do two things. The first thing I want to do is remind some of you that it's not about how you behave. It's not about what you do. The second reason that I tell you this is because there are people in this room who will tell you that they're not good enough to be a follower of Jesus. Because I know people who, who, who hear this today and who will hear people talking about this and then for the first time someone will have told them, you don't have to be well behaved to be a follower of Jesus. It's not as if you have to meet certain expectations before you become a Christian. Jesus doesn't have a long list of behaviors for you to master. What you have to do is you have to be willing to say, I'm not good enough. The only way I can be good enough for heaven is for Jesus to take my place. And so today we're kicking off this series called Not Me. And this series called Not Me, we're going to look over the next couple of weeks at, at how, for us, the tendency and, 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 the, and the motive is always to look out for number one. It's always to make sure that I'm taken care of. It's always to make sure that what I want is happening. It's always to make sure that it's about me. And today we're talking about not me because I'm not worthy. And you say, so not me, Jesus, Jesus couldn't save me. Not me, I don't need Jesus because I'm already good enough. Whatever camp you fall in, whatever, whatever mode you fall into, the fact of the matter is, is that in order for you to be a follower of Jesus, in order for you to achieve the ultimate goal of heaven, in order for you to bring heaven to earth, you have to be willing to say, not me. But not me in the sense that you hear it. You have to be willing to say, not me. I'm not my focus, other people are. Not me, I'm not my focus, Jesus is my focus. So in order to help you do that over the next couple of, of weeks and hopefully to, to transform how we see ourselves, we're doing a little thing, it's a minor thing, but I think it could be huge for us. We're calling it the Not Me Campaign. And over the month of April and a couple of weeks into May, as we talk about Not Me, we're going to do some stuff to make sure that we as people are focused on not ourselves. The first, we did it last year, and we will do it every year until the cows come home, which I don't know what that means, but it means a long time. We're going to do the peanut butter and jelly 500. Last year, we collected something in the neighborhood of 275 jars of jelly and 250 jars of peanut butter, and we're going to do it again. So for the next couple of weeks, there will be boxes out front for you to bring jars of peanut butter and jars of jelly so that we can collect 500 jars of peanut butter and jelly to donate to our friends at the Shepherd's House. The Shepherd's House is a local ministry that we support, and one of the things that Shepherd's House does is that they give food out on a regular basis. But they have rules and regulations to how and when they give out food, but sometimes people get desperate, and when they're desperate, what Shepherd's House does is they provide peanut butter and jelly. And it's time for us, again, to make sure that we're focused not on ourselves, but on buying peanut butter and buying jelly that we won't eat, but will go to someone else, because it's not about me. The second thing we're going to do is a thing called Rice and Beans Week. I'm really excited about this. This is not something we've ever done before. It's a church in Cincinnati does it every year, and we're stealing it from them. But here's what we're going to do the week of April 22nd through the 28th. If you're this kind of person who is tough enough and who is brave enough, for the entire week you eat nothing but rice and beans. 
The reason to do that is, A, rice and beans is about as cheap as you can get for a meal. B, it'll be a great reminder that this isn't about me. This isn't about what I want. Here's the goal. What we want you to do during Rice and Beans Week, however that works for your family, however it works in your dietary restrictions, is we want your family to commit to eating as cheaply as possible, to commit to saving as much money on groceries as possible, to commit to staying away from going out to eat for the week, to commit to finding ways to scrimp and save, because then we want you to take the money that you would have budgeted for the week of April 22nd through 28th for going out to eat, for buying fancy coffees, for... uh, for buying groceries. We want you to take that money, and then we're going to take up a special offering on Sunday, April 29th, and send the money that you saved from Rice and Beans Week, send it directly to our partners in Mexico to help provide meals for kids. And I'm of the opinion that we would be able to fund a lot of meals for a lot of kids if we commit to saying, you know what, the week of April 22nd through the 28th, I'm eating as cheaply as humanly possible. Nothing but rice and beans, beans and rice, nothing but ramen. I'm giving up everything I can to save some extra money so that we can give and our partners in Mexico can feed children. The third thing we're going to do is on May 5th, that's a Saturday, and the morning that day, we're going to have a serve day. We've talked with several community partners already. We've got a few more that we're lining up, and we're working together with these partners to find ways for us to give up a Saturday morning, several hours on a Saturday morning, to, to, to commit to beautifying and helping and restoring dignity to people all across our town. And so over the next month, these are just a few of the things we're going to be doing to make sure that our focus is not me. You see, here's the thing. It does not matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you do all three of those things perfectly, if you provide 250 jars of peanut butter and 250 jars of jelly before anybody else gets a chance and we finish our goal of 500 jars. It doesn't matter if you eat nothing but rice and beans for the rest of your life. It doesn't matter if you serve every minute of every day of the rest of your life. You are not worthy of Jesus. But that is what makes the story of Jesus so incredibly beautiful. I want you to hear me when I say this. That you cannot earn your way to Jesus You cannot be good enough for Jesus. You cannot give your way to Jesus. The only thing that you can do is come to Jesus and say, I'm not worthy for you to save me. Because when you say, I'm not worthy for Jesus to save me, it's the exact attitude that Jesus wants from his followers. This week, um, about two weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, um, Snoop Dogg released a new album I find it interesting that I continually come back to you with rap hot takes, but you can't take the street out of me no matter how hard you try. And um, so Snoop Dogg released a gospel album. And here's what's really interesting is that it's like a full-on gospel album. There's a gospel choir. They sing about Jesus. It's all about Jesus and the cross and what he did for us. But here's where it gets funny. There are people, Christians, who are mad that that Snoop Dogg or Snoop Lion, depending on which generation you're from, that Snoop... (laughs) released an album with the gospel. And so there was this pushback from people who were like, no, you can't do that. And I loved, the, I loved reading and hearing articles from him because he was like, man, I thought the whole purpose of the church, and he says it in the way that only Snoop can. I won't even try to imitate him. But he's like, I thought the whole purpose of the church was for people who say, man, I'm not good enough and I'm messed up, but I want to know more about Jesus. 
And he's like, that's not the vibe I'm getting from, from the church right now. And it was such a perfect picture of who Jesus is because Jesus is for the bad guys. And I want you to hear that. Jesus is for the bad guys. The ones that the church people, the ones that the, the well-to-do people, the ones that the, the fake people think are not good enough are the very ones that Jesus came for. Look at the, the story of Jesus. If you look throughout this, the, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories of his life, you'll see that he meets up with tax collectors like Levi and Zacchaeus. You'll see that he purposefully talks to a woman at the well who'd been divorced five times and was living with a man who wasn't her husband. He sought her out to talk to her. You'll see in, in John chapter 8, you'll see him talk with a woman who's, who's committed adultery, and everyone else in the town wants to kill her, and Jesus wants to just talk to her. You'll see over and over again in the story of Jesus that Jesus is for the bad guys, that Jesus is for the people that other people wouldn't have associated with. And there's one story in particular that I, that I like, and I think it's a perfect explanation of, of us saying, you know what, I, I'm a bad guy. And it happens in, in Luke chapter 7, if you want to open your Bible there, but, but it's there in Luke chapter 7 when, when Jesus meets a guy who's, who says, Jesus, I'm, I'm not worthy of this. And he has the attitude that I want you and I to model on a regular basis. So check this out with me. In Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1, it says, When Jesus had finished saying all this to his people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. And you want to talk about bad guys. For the people of Israel, for God's people in the first century, bad guys start with Romans. Rome had occupied Israel. Israel was not happy with it. They did not like Rome. They didn't like the centurions. They didn't like the soldiers. Soldiers were mean, nasty guys. So you talk about the kind of guys that an Israelite would stick his nose up and say, you don't deserve Jesus. You're talking about Romans. This guy was a little different, I admit. He, uh, he kind of has a unique case by comparison, but he still has the stigma. And he still has this moment where the rest of Israel thinks that he's not good enough. You see, the centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. And I want you to catch that because this is so important. Catch that this guy knows who Jesus is, knows what Jesus is doing, and he knows who he is. And he knows, you know what, I'm, I'm a Roman never really got this right. I, I, don't, I don't really know a lot about God. He says, maybe if I send some people to represent me, maybe, maybe I'll have a chance. But it's this attitude that he has in this moment where he's like, I, I can't ask Jesus for that. I'm not good enough. And it stopped me in my tracks as I was thinking about it. And I was like, how many times do I, do I pray? How many times do I ask? And I say, God, you better Maybe I don't really say that, but I, but I think it. And here's this Roman centurion whose who's number one right-hand man is sick. And he says, God, I don't really deserve the opportunity to ask this, but if there's ever a chance that you could do something. And so what happens is he sends those guys, and they come to Jesus, and they pleaded earnestly with him. And I want you to see this. This is, this is so important. And they say, this man deserves... To have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. And it's so funny to me because 
Because these guys, they, they grew up in the Israelite tradition. They grew up as Jews. They grew up as rule followers, as legalists. And they're going, hey, listen, Jesus, you should heal this guy's, this guy's servant because he's really nice. He's, he's a good person. And so for these leaders and for these guys, all that matters is that that guy was doing good. All that matters is that that guy had built the temple. All that mattered, it didn't really matter his heart. It didn't really matter his backstory. All that mattered to those guys was he's a good person. And so they come to Jesus and they say, you should do this because this person does good things. And I, and I want to pause here. This is kind of, a, kind of a tangent, but it's an important tangent to, to show you that in this time, in the time of Jesus, Israel and Rome are bitter rivals. There are Israelites who called zealots who just walk through town stabbing Roman soldiers and running away. But Rome, in history class, you learned about the thing called the Pax Romana when it was the peace of Rome. But the real truth for Israel and Rome is it was anything but peaceful the entire time they were in a relationship together. The entire time that Rome is over Israel, it's anything but peaceful. But this Roman soldier wanted to do things differently. So in the midst of enemies, in the midst of people who were different than him, he made sure to take steps to have influence among them. He made sure to take steps that even though you people oppose me, even though you're different than me, I want you to know that I'm, I'm here for you. And so I, I want to ask you the question, when you're around people who think differently than you, when you're around people who behave differently than you, are you reaching out to them in a positive manner that would influence them to say, I don't know what that guy's got going on, but I want some of it. I don't know what that girl, why her heart is the way it is, but I want to be more like her. And he wasn't perfect. He was a person. He, he made, made mistakes. He messed up. But in one way, you and I can emulate him so much. Because he sends this delegation out and Jesus starts coming his way and word's getting out that Jesus is coming to the centurion's house. And look at what he does. He starts to have second thoughts about Jesus even entering his house. And so, so Jesus went with them. He wasn't far from the house when the centurion sent his friends to say to him, don't trouble yourself. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And this guy is so afraid of Jesus. He's so in awe of Jesus that he's like, I can't even let you in my house. And he said, what you can do is you can just say the word and he'll be healed. He says, I, I just want you to do that. You see, what he's doing in this moment is a word that we call repentance. Repentance means to, to turn around. Because what he's saying to Jesus is he's saying, Jesus, I'm not worthy of who you are. And he says, I've, I've been a bad guy. I've done bad things. He says, I don't deserve to have you in my home. And it's because he tells Jesus that. It's because his posture is one to say, I don't deserve any of this. That this happens next in verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd and following him, he said, I tell you, 
I have not found such great faith even in Israel. And then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. And this is the story of us. This is the story of you and I realizing that we are not good enough, that we aren't behaved enough, that we aren't rule followers enough, that we aren't generous enough, and that we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I, I messed up. I don't deserve for you to take my place, but the only way I have a chance is if you take my place and die instead of me. So who's good enough? Not me. A few chapters later, Jesus meets this guy called the rich young ruler. We don't know his name because he just appears for a couple of verses. But he's the perfect contrast to who, to who the centurion is. Because the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, how do I get into heaven? And what he's asking Jesus in that moment is, how do I earn my way? into heaven? How do I spend my way? How do I give my way into heaven? I've got all the money I need. What do I need to do with it? And Jesus tells him, he says, you, you need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he walks away sad. But the centurion comes to Jesus and he says, I'm not even worthy to see you. I'm not even worthy to speak to you. So, but if there's any chance, if there's even the slimmest of hopes that you that you might come and save me, I would be eternally grateful. Do you see the, the difference? Do you see the contrast in the attitudes? The first one who says, what can I do? The first one who says, how can I get it? The second one who says, not me. I'm not worthy. My friends, every single one of us is the centurion. Every single one of us is not good enough. The things that we do, the life we live, the, the, the attempts we make to follow Jesus aren't a way to earn his favor. They're a way to tell him, thank you. Thank you. Jesus is the only reason we have a chance. If you were to list the worst people in the world, the worst people in history, it would, it would be a long list. It would start with guys like Hitler and Mao, and you could, you could go to Mussolini and, and some other bad dictators. But if you said, okay, don't think leaders, just think people, I don't think it would take very long for most people to say the name Jeffrey Dahmer. And I've told his story before because it's such a powerful and fascinating story, but but the story of Jeffrey Dahmer is the story of a man who killed 17 men and boys. But it wasn't just that he killed them. There have been serial killers before. There have been serial killers since. But when police caught him and investigators went to his home, it's in the freezer of his house that they found body parts. And it's through their investigation and through their digging that they found not only were there body parts there, but they discovered that he had been cooking and eating his victims. And so Jeffrey Dahmer is a sick, twisted, special kind of bad guy. And he was convicted and he went to jail. 
But here's where the story of, of Jeffrey Dahmer gets interesting. When you hear stories like Jeffrey Dahmer's, you hear there's a special place in hell reserved for guys like that. But while he was in prison, Jeffrey Dahmer heard about Jesus. And by all accounts, and, and according to several people who were respected and, and leaders in, in the faith, they'll tell you that in prison, Jeffrey Dahmer gave his life to Jesus. That Jeffrey Dahmer said, Jesus, I, I deserve to die, but I know that you took the place of guys even like me. And Jeffrey Dahmer said, I'm not worthy, but I know you can take my place. So this is the story of Jesus. It's the story of people like you and me. Stories of people who can say, I'm not as bad as Jeffrey Dahmer, but I still deserved death. I still wasn't worthy of Jesus. And so the story goes that Jesus came and he lived and because Jesus lived, he died in my place, he died in your place, he died so that we don't have to pay what we deserve. And we remember that by taking the bread and taking the cup, his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us when we deserve it.